It is the Advent season, that is the, the season in the church's calendar leading up to Christmas Eve and uh, Christmas Day, and I think we would be really remiss if we did not consider a very simple account of the conception and birth of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Matthew. So I'm going to draw your attention to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Um, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verse 18 just to the end of the chapter. Um, if you do have your Bibles with you, if you look down, you will see that verses 1 through 17 contain uh, an explanation of what we call the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and kids, genealogy really refers to the family tree of Jesus Christ. Those of Jesus's ancestors um, leading up to the time of his arrival in this earth. And if you've been raised with the Bible, you will sometimes, if you were raised with what we call family devotions or family Bible reading, remember dad or maybe sometimes mom would read the genealogies and they would go, so-and-so begets so-and-so and so-and-so begets so-and-so and so on. And usually at that point you turn out or tune out because it's just like, oh boy, you know. And yet when you look at the family tree of Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Christ, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing when you begin to open it up. And the basic theme of that is how much, if Jesus' ancestors needed Jesus himself, the one who eventually comes to this world, how much more uh, you and I. Now, this passage that we're reading um, after the genealogy of Jesus Christ is a really, really simple account. So I want to draw your attention to it now. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, betrothed, we don't even use that word anymore. Usually the word we use today is engaged. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name, in the Greek, Jesus, Jesus, Savior, the one who will save us from our sins. If you look earlier in the passage, in the very first verse I read, it talks about the, the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. When we, when we speak about Jesus, oftentimes we connect the word Christ to his name, right? He is not just Jesus, he is Jesus Christ. And, and, and kids, if you're, if you're raised in the faith, you probably learn early on that Jesus is his personal name. It simply means Savior, and actually is closely aligned with the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Savior, or the one through whom salvation comes. 
the, the word Christ or Christos, Jesus Christos in the Greek, the, the word Christ or the name Christ is his, not his personal name as much as it is his official name. So Jesus points to who he is as our Savior, and the word Christ points more to what he has come to do as our prophet and our priest and our king. So this account of Jesus refers to Jesus in, in a personal way, but also in official way. But the last word we read in this passage focuses on the more personal name of Jesus and what he's come to do, and that is the very one who's entered into this world to save us from our sin and to reconcile us to God. And that, I hope to demonstrate this afternoon, is what Christmas is all about. Now, if you were listening carefully or if you had a Bible and you were following along, you're probably, maybe, uh, struck by just how simple this account is. This is not deeply philosophical language. This is not the kind of writing that you would find in a, a doctoral dissertation or some kind of deep researched writing. This is a simple story and it's designed to be simple so that whoever reads it, whether they've been in the Christian faith for many, many years or are reading the Bible for the first time, it's found in language that anyone, even the smallest of children, can understand. That's, that's part of the beauty of it. So, so I want to begin by saying this afternoon that this, this account is simple, it is direct, and uh, relatively, I suppose, compared to other scriptures, somewhat unadorned and certainly understated. Yet we have to realize that what the story is about in terms of its content is monumental because what we find here this afternoon is a man named Joseph who is engaged to a very young woman. Many commentators believe that the woman's name is Mary, that Mary at this very time is maybe no more than 15 or 16 years old. So if you're, if you're a young woman around 15 or 16 years old, you can probably enter into this passage much more than some of the rest of us, at least in a very experiential, personal level. So you have Joseph who is engaged to this young woman, Mary, but then he discovers something, and that is that Mary is with child. Mary is pregnant. She's going to have a baby, and this is, this is greatly disturbing to Joseph because Joseph understands that that baby isn't his, which means that Mary must have been in another relationship, and Joseph's now thinking, now what do I do? And so he thinks about this, and he comes to the conclusion that uh, it's probably the better part of wisdom simply to quietly end the relationship. And that's how the story begins. It's time to just kind of quietly sweep this matter under the rug. So really, at the very beginning of this simple story, we are, we are in the midst of a, of a crisis and the, the whole of the story, really, if you, if you allow it to kind of sink into your bones, just kind of cries out for some kind of uh, resolution, some, some form of divine intervention, the intervention of God himself. And then as we go on to read the story, we realize that's exactly what God does. He intervenes in this situation through an angel who communicates with Joseph by means of a dream. 
Now, it's kind of interesting that when you look at uh, the narrative or the, the story revolving around the conception birth of Jesus Christ, that you will actually read about four different dreams. I don't know if you know that, but this, the, the, the dream that came to Joseph was not the only dream. So there are four dreams surrounding the conception birth of Christ. First of all is a dream that comes to Joseph that basically tells him not to end his relationship with Mary. And then you have a second dream where Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus in time are instructed to, to leave the area where they're at and go to Egypt, right? Because there is another king at this point beyond King Jesus named King Herod who doesn't want any competing kings. He understands that Jesus has been born into this world and it's time to do away with this baby Jesus. So he, so he pursues Jesus and ends up killing a number of children in the, the little town where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, all in order to extinguish the Christ Jesus himself. But of course, God is protecting him at this point. So God says to Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, flee Bethlehem, go to Egypt. The third dream is where after Herod dies and they're out of danger, where God says to Joseph and Mary, take the baby Jesus and come back to Israel. And then finally, a fourth dream is where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are instructed to go to an area called Galilee. Four dreams. Four dreams in the account of the conception and birth of Jesus. And it's kind of interesting that if you read your Bibles and you look at some human experiences today, God chooses to reveal himself by reveal something by way of dreams. Let me give you one quick uh, illustration of this. I don't know if you've ever heard of this individual called Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was a Pakistani Muslim. And if you've ever talked to Muslims, you know that not all Muslims are the same, nor do they have the same content to their faith. Some Muslims are more convicted and knowledgeable than others. And if you've ever worked with Muslims, as I have, you know that the Pakistani Muslims um, are, the, are in their own category. They tend to be very doctrinally aware, and so was Nabil Qureshi. He left Pakistan as a young man in order to come to the United States in order to study medicine. And while he was in the States um, studying medicine at med school, he met a young Christian man who befriended him and started sharing the Christian faith with him. And Nabil started to read his Bible. He interacted with his friend about a number of things, and, and the Lord was beginning to work in his life to the point where he was really wondering, is Christianity really true or not? And he knew that if Christianity was really true and he would embrace the Jesus of our passage, that would turn his life upside down. And his own family would befriend him. So there was a real cost and real repercussions if he would become a Christian. And he was struggling with this, and at one point, he actually asked God if God would reveal himself in a very clear way. So according to the story of Nabil Qureshi, God revealed some things in a dream in the, in the, through symbols of crosses and serpents and narrow doors. And according to Qureshi, in addition to his reading of the Bible and interaction with Christians, God used those dreams to draw him to Christ and to walk in the Christian faith. Now, sometimes people say, and I'm going to get back to the, the, the passage right away, but sometimes people say, well, does, does God really 
ordinarily do that today. And ordinarily, no, God does not really, in the same way as he did at this point in redemptive history, God does not reveal him in that same way, ordinarily by way of dreams. And yet there are some times, and it happens too often in terms of Muslims in particular, the stories are too many where they, not every case, but they will say God had revealed himself to them by means of a dream that drew them ultimately to Christ. Well, what we have here is a revelation of God at this point of redemptive history to Joseph. And in this dream, through an angel, basically God is saying to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you shall call him the Son Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now you wonder what was going on with Joseph when he, when he received this dream, right? Was he, was he unsettled? Uh, was he scared? Uh, was he somewhat relieved that now he knows that he can, he can marry the woman who he loves? Bear in mind, however he must have felt that Joseph was prepared to end his relationship with Mary. In fact, it's kind of interesting here in this uh, passage that we read that her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, maybe you thought about this before when you, when you read the word divorce here, that when we think of divorce, we think of people who have been married and then their marriage ends, and it ends sometimes uh, is irrefic- ir- um, uh, unchangeably ends by means of um, a divorce, right? We oftentimes don't use that in terms of engagement, do we? But we have to understand Joseph's and Mary's relationship not in our Western terms um, today, okay? So in, in Joseph and Mary's day, an engagement was very, it was, in many ways, it was a marriage. So what would happen is that when a young couple would get together and they would, they would have a formal ceremony where, they, where, there was a, where there was a binding contract between the two of them. And then what would happen is that after that ceremony took place, which would be akin to a, our marriage ceremonies today, the, the young man and young woman would go, go back, they would live with their parents, and only later would they consummate the marriage. Only later would they have sexual intercourse. So it was really, in a sense, a two-stage um, relationship. First, that formal solemn engagement like a marriage, and then they would consummate the marriage later. Well, Joseph and Mary were in this formal contract together, this relational bond with each other, but it was during this formal bond that they had with each other that, it, that, that Mary discovered that she was pregnant. And of course, Joseph thought, well, here we are, we're in this binding contract, we're engaged, and she's, if we could say it today, messing around with another guy, and she gets pregnant. And so that was a serious thing because really, technically, Mary could have received the death penalty for that in that time. But, but rarely was the death penalty ever carried out at that point in history during the days of Joseph and Mary. So at any rate, Joseph figures this is a serious situation nonetheless, and so he said we need to, to end this relationship. Now, 
I want to be clear about this, that the Bible says here, this text says that Joseph was, um, uh, some translations use a just man, like our translation, other translations use he was a, he was a righteous man. In other words, it's really saying that he was a, a principled man. In other words, he didn't say, well, you know, uh, man, that's, 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 that really is unfortunate, but you know we're going to carry through with this relationship. He was, he was the kind of principled man who said, um, I, I don't think it's right to, um, to move forward with this relationship. And so we're going to end it. But I want you to notice how he's planning on ending it. He was a righteous man. He was a just man, a principled man, but he was not a graceless man. Sometimes you find people who are so principled that they're graceless or loveless. That wasn't Joseph. He was principled, but he was loving, he was grace-filled, and that's why he thought to himself, I don't like, I don't like it what Mary did, but I'm not going to draw an overmount of attention to this either, and I'm not going to rub her face in the dirt on this one. So what we're going to do is we're just going to end the relationship quietly. And it's precisely at this point that God intervenes and he gives Joseph this dream. A dream that, as we discover in this passage, that really changed the course of Joseph's life and Mary's life. And if I may add this also, God chose to change the course of our lives as well. I want to draw your attention to verses 20, uh, verse 20 and following, where we get to see what the angel says but as Joseph considered these things, namely the pregnancy of Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for, and here's what Jesus' name means, Jesus, Savior, he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Comes from a prophecy of Isaiah, which means God with us. Now, again, this is very, very simple language. But the profound nature of this language is such that we have to see that there is, there, there is a monumental truth here that we need to understand, and that is this. And it really gets at the heart of the gospel. When the angel announces to Joseph that, that Mary is pregnant, he, he, he basically says two things. First of all, he talks about the conception of the child in the womb, that this conception did not come from another man, but it came from God himself through the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible never goes on to explain exactly how that happened, because the Bible the is not a scientific textbook. It just simply states it as is. We don't know how, only that it is. So this, this life came into Mary through the womb, or uh, through the Holy Spirit, the life in her womb. And there's an interesting thing in Luke chapter 2 where it talks about the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, literally shadowing upon Mary. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a reference to the tabernacle in, of the Old Testament 
where God's presence would come down upon the tabernacle and fill the tabernacle with his presence. And now what is happening with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is descending and really is filling Mary with the presence of God himself. Again, it doesn't give us details, only that God is at work here and he's planting life through the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is also not just God by means of that, but Jesus is also human. For that child will be born through Mary and he will be a human son. When the angel announces these words in simple fashion, basically saying this, and here's where the gospel is, the good news of Jesus. Jesus has come into this world as one person, two natures, fully human, fully divine. There's a, a church creed, what we call an ecumenical creed, called the Creed of Chalcedon, that basically lays out the two natures of Jesus. And the Creed of Chalcedon tells us, rightly so, that Jesus came into this world as one person, but two different natures, fully human, fully divine. And what the Bible and Christian theology teaches us is that Jesus needed, needed to be fully human and divine in order to save us from our sins, deal with the sin problems in the world, and reconcile us to Almighty God. All of that is wrapped up in this simple account. Now, some of you may be wondering, why did Jesus need to be both fully human and fully God in order to reconcile us to God? Why couldn't God just say, you know what, you've been a very bad people, but if you just believe in me, I will save you. There's a lot of people who believe that, right? It's just, it's just God at work. Why, why, why do we need Jesus, right? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus doesn't say, I am a way and a truth and a life, but there may be others who give you life or truth or what have you. No, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to God but through Jesus. So our passage tells us, okay, in order for us to come to God through Jesus, Jesus for us need to be human and divine. Why? Why? Okay. AV team, have you got it? All right. Very good. I want to draw your attention to one of the documents that we hold dear in this church. It's called the Hatterberg Catechism. And by the way, we're going to get back to our series in the beginning of January. So just be patient with that. Now, what the Heidelberg does, written about 450 years ago, what it does is explains why Jesus needs to be both human and also divine to be our only qualified uh, uh, Savior. And um, what I want to do is I, I want to leave the story before us behind a little bit. I'm going to get a little doctrinal right now, but we need to understand this doctrine. Okay, it asks the question in question answer 16, why must he, that's referring to Jesus, why must he be true and righteous man? And the answer, he must be a true man, that is a genuine man, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned must pay for sin. That's why when Jesus came into this world, he, he couldn't be just an angel, because we're not angels. He couldn't be just God because we're human. Jesus needed to be fully God, yes, but he also needed to be human because it's we 
humans who sinned against God. And the human nature that sinned must make satisfaction for sin. But we can't pay for our own sin. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus came as a human, and he identified with us as a human because we are humans who sinned. And we need him to deal with the sin problem. But it goes on to say, he must also be righteous man because the one himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Now, this is why Jesus couldn't come into this world merely as a human like you and me. Jesus couldn't, for instance, be like the one who you see right now preaching. I can't save you. Why? Because I'm a sinner like you. And one sinner can't pay for the sins of others. This is why Jesus needed to be not only human, but a righteous human, a perfect one, a sinless one. Heidelberg, it, it, it puts it in very simple language, but very accurate and very understandable language. Now, next question. Why must Jesus at the same time be true God, not just human? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Jesus needed to be God in simple language because we needed a perfect sacrifice, but more than that, God's wrath, the wrath of a holy and a just God is so intense that if Jesus were merely a creature, merely a human being, he would be destroyed under that wrath. Jesus is known in biblical terms as a propitiatory sacrifice, and it's kind of a big word, but the word propitiation has to do with the wrath of God. So that when Jesus paid the price of sin, what he did is he appeased or he smoothed over the intense wrath of God upon us by taking it upon himself. That's why he needed to be God. That's why he needed to be God. And I tell you, there have been times when Jehovah Witnesses have come to the door and we are talking exactly about these things. And the Jehovah Witnesses will say, you know, Jesus was a God, but he wasn't fully God himself. And I bring something up to them on the basis of the Heidelberg that I never think of. And I say this, if Jesus was merely a God, merely a creature, he would absolutely be crushed be, be, by the eternal, awesome wrath of God they said, you don't understand the holiness of God. I said to them, you don't understand the justice of God, and you don't understand Jesus as that propitiatory sacrifice. You know, um, this document, the Heidelberg, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a joy to go through this in their afternoon services because it's, it just doesn't teach us what is right. It's actually a pretty wonderful evangelistic document to use when you, when you, when you begin to see the possibilities of the catechism for that. Anyway. We'll get more in the catechism in the time to come. At any rate, um, simply put, getting back to the simplicity of our passage, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not just any Savior. He's, he's, a, he's a very different Savior and is a uniquely qualified Savior who came into this world, as our passage says, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God, and born of the Virgin Mary. And I want to leave you with the last two verses. Verse 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I'll just take a moment with this. This is kind of interesting. See, Jesus comes as both human and divine, our qualified Savior, and according to the angel who said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary's wife, he obeyed the angel. So 
I'm going to take Mary as my wife. And he marries her. And he had every right, in a way, to consummate the marriage, to have sex with her. But he chose not. You say, why didn't he do that? In order to protect the integrity of Jesus. So no one can say, once Jesus, as a human boy, is brought into this world, oh yeah, that was, uh, that was Joseph and Mary. Uh-uh. Joseph kept himself. Can you imagine the, the, the self-control of that? All for the sake of the Christ. Because I'm not going to do it. We're not, we're not going to have relations with each other to protect the integrity of this son. He is not conceived through me, but through God himself born through my wife for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. Friends, this is the reason, as they say, for this season. You know, and in our, in our Western world during the time of this Christmas season, you know, you go downtown and you do your shop and you go online and what do we find? Seasons, greetings, happy holidays and all this and create some warm fuzzies this time of year. But if you think about it from a Christian worldview, what this does is it really keeps us from understanding the full import of why Jesus came into this world, and that's simply this. It is to reconcile earth and heaven. It is to reconcile sinners who are, who are following the path of judgment, eternal judgment, taking sinners and coming for them and providing his life for them so that for all who repent and believe and embrace the Savior, they are, praise God, brought into harmony with God. They are reconciled to God. And that's why we sing, as we're going to sing in just a moment. Hark the herald angels sing, right? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. And what? God and sinners reconciled. Praise God for that. That's the good news of Christmas, and that's the good news. Hopefully, we embrace this afternoon and a news that we are going to celebrate more in our Christmas Eve service together. Now, before we sing, let's have a quick prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessings of Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world as not only God, but also man. Fully God and fully human. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for moving on from your birth eventually to the cross and offering your very life to make atonement for our sins and to reconcile us to you. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would use this Christmas season to warm our hearts toward you and give you thanks, oh God, for all the blessings that we have in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.